This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. It was British epidemiologist Neil Ferguson who gave us that infamous Imperial College model at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, warning that 500,000 people in the UK would die without a nationwide lockdown. And then he amended that to say the death toll was unlikely to exceed 20,000. This from a man who had already wrongly projected deaths from mad cow disease, bird flu, and swine flu. He ended up resigning from the British government's virus advisory board. That change by Ferguson helped my next guest, author and former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson, emerge as an important online source for research and facts on the pandemic. He was later permanently suspended from Twitter for saying that the vaccine doesn't stop infection or transmission of the virus even though that's true. And here's where we are now. The government and media are hyping the new and reportedly mild Omicron variant. But meanwhile, just days ago, under court order, the FDA released the first round of documents it reviewed before licensing the Pfizer vaccine. Now, one of those documents is a cumulative analysis of post-authorization adverse event reports through February 28th, which is two and a half months after it granted the emergency use authorization. And according to the attorney involved in the case, that document shows Pfizer received more than 42 thousand reports containing more than 158,000 events, mostly from America, and the reported adverse events disproportionately involved women. 26,000 of these events classified as nervous system disorders. This all shows we need the truth about everything concerning this pandemic. And Alex Berenson is out with a new book talking all about it. The book is called Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, Rights and Lives. And it is wonderful to talk to you, Alex. Thank you so much for being here. It's, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm curious, first of all, to get your take on these new documents. The FDA, a lot of people know, initially wanted 55 years to review its data before giving it out to the public. What, what is your response to this news about these reported adverse events and the balking of the FDA on being transparent about it? Well, I mean, I, I have to be honest with you. This is, I mean, it's always strange to me what lands, in other words, what gains media or what gains traction in sort of across the Internet and in the media and goes viral, because uh, this, this data has essentially been publicly available on VAERS, which is the you know, federal vaccine side effect reporting system, yeah. uh, for, since, since, you know, for months, since February, because Pfizer had to report this data to VAERS where it became publicly available. So, so when people say, well, there were 1,200 deaths you know, from the Pfizer vaccine that, uh, that, you know, that the FDA knew about. Well, those deaths were on VAERS. And yeah. by the way, we don't know that all those deaths were caused by the vaccine, or frankly, that any of them were caused by the vaccine. We know that they occurred after the administration of the vaccine. But I think, you know, I think what's happened, actually, and it's so interesting to see this, is people are much more suspicious about the vaccine than they were eight or nine months ago. True. And reasonably so, because yeah. what they've seen is that the promises haven't come true. What they were told in the winter and spring was the vaccine will end this. You know, you will get your shot. You may not want to, and you might have some side effects, and it might not be that pleasant for a couple of days, but if we all do our part and roll up our sleeves, this will be over. 
that was essentially the explicit promise made. And, um, you know, and I can find you statements. There are statements in pandemia that people made like that. And that has proven not to be the case. So now that they know that the efficacy is not what was promised, they're reconsidering the the sort of general dangers and the general risk benefit of this vaccine. And so these FDA documents sort of fall into that. Right. Well, and there's a lot that we don't know, but you're talking about VAERS. And what is the ratio of events that are reported to VAERS versus the known quantity of potential adverse events? I mean, that probably is a number we can't really get a handle on. But what is the the, the basic perception of how accurate VAERS is to get a a real handle on who's been injured or, or died because of the vaccine? So we really don't know that. There's a number that sort of anti-vaccine advocates like to say, where they say only 1% of events are reported. It's not clear that that's true. It is clear that there's significant underreporting. And what I would say is that for, for sort of mild events that everybody knows are related to the vaccine anyway, there's going to be huge underreporting. So in other words, if you, if you get laid up with a fever for a couple of days after the vaccine, that's just not getting reported. Yeah. If it's a really serious event um, that is you know, that is clearly unusual. Doctors are going to be more likely to report that. But even so, it's clear that there's significant underreporting. And the reason that we know that is because on occasion, the health authorities will then say to people, to doctors, that is, you have to report all these events. Right. We want you to, you know, look specifically for this. And when that happens, the events just roll in. So my best guess is that for really serious side effects, somewhere between 10 and 50 percent of the events are reported. And for less serious stuff, it's less than 10%. Very interesting. Now, when you made the remark, and I I know you had actually talked about the vaccine quite a bit because I was following you on Twitter through the whole pandemic, but when you talked about the efficacy of the vaccine and whether or not it's really a vaccine, I thought that was a a great point because you talked about that a while ago as well. The fact that in your view, if I'm saying it correctly, the mRNA vaccine really behaves in many ways like a therapeutic, what like a Tamiflu would behave on the flu to, you know, shorten the duration of the symptoms, that sort of thing. But in in saying what you said, that the COVID-19 vaccine does not stop uh, infection, it doesn't stop transmission, you got put out to pasture by Twitter, but isn't that true? I mean, that's just a flat out fact, is it not? Yeah, it's an absolute fact. I mean, Fauci has said it. Boris Johnson, the prime minister of England, has said it. You know, I don't know anybody who, who disagrees right now. I uh, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the vaccine advocates, the vaccine fanatics, as I sometimes call them, you know, what they now say is, well, we never promised that this would really stop the a pandemic, which is not true. Again, yeah. they, and they say it's still we still are pretty sure it's very good at stopping serious disease and death. And, uh, you know, we're going to show you some numbers that make that appear to be true now. And this is a, this is sort of a complicated statistical argument that I don't. I don't really want to get into the weeds on, but it's very, very hard to make those comparisons because unless you know exactly who's been vaccinated and unless you know that the people who've been vaccinated and the people who haven't been vaccinated are exactly the same in terms of their population. And I don't just mean age. I mean, in terms of underlying sickness, you can't really make those comparisons in a meaningful way. And what people don't understand is that in the United States and elsewhere, Elderly people who haven't been vaccinated, a significant number of them are probably in hospice or otherwise too frail to be vaccinated. And so they are at great risk from COVID. So it is very hard. When, when you look at those numbers, understand that that is what they're not telling you. 
that, the, that there's this group of people who are, who are going to die if they get COVID. And a lot of those people are not vaccinated because they can't be. Yes. Now, now, when you're talking about this issue, I think it's really important for people to understand how rare you are in terms of a reporter trying to, I think you call yourself an outside reporter in the, in the course of the book. You're interested in facts. You're interested in what's true, which is what all reporters have been trained to do, myself included, when I was a reporter. This is how it goes. What kind of reaction, though, have you received from some of your colleagues, uh, people at The New York Times? Because it it blows my mind to think how quickly they would be on this data if President Trump were still the president. That that, that is absolutely true. And, you know, for that reason, and I didn't vote, and I say this in the book, I didn't vote for either, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden. I wish Donald Trump were president, because in that case, the news media would be doing its job. And, And those people hate me. Okay, it is it is almost shocking to me how much my former colleagues have turned against me, including people who know personally what a real reporter I am and what you know, what the stories I did at The New York Times were like. And so it is it is stunning to me. I mean, you know, somebody said to me a few months ago, they said, are you do you have sort of a back channel into the paper or, you know, or other, you know, sort of top news organizations uh, where people are telling you we really support you, but we can't talk about it? And I told them the truth. I said, not really. No, there's very few people in those organizations who support me even privately, as far as I know. And that is unlike the scientific community. Okay, I hear from a lot of scientists and doctors who are who and they feed me papers and they tell me this is what you need to look at. That's those people know the truth and they want it out. But the news media is not interested It's incredible. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Alex Berenson. Pandemia is his book. Stay with us on Janet Mefford today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers around the world for only five $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Over the past several weeks, I've been thrilled to see so many of you step up to rescue over 75 families through the ministry of Heart for Lebanon. Thank you for providing survival essentials. But most importantly, we're grateful that you've helped share the hope of the gospel with hurting refugee and poverty-stricken Lebanese families. If you didn't get a chance to participate, please know the need in Lebanon remains urgent. It's never too late to give. Visit heartforlebanon.org to find out more. That's heartforlebanon.org. 
If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, I really think that former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson has done such a tremendous service to this country in terms of how willing he is as a reporter to go to facts and research and data and truth when it comes to talking about COVID-19 and everything that's followed from our ridiculous response. He is out with a great new book. It's called Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government Rights and Lives. That's pathetic, by the way. I just wanted to finish, Alex, when you were telling about the meat. It makes me sick. I'm not surprised at all, uh, but it just makes me sick that you are being marginalized in the way you are. But talk a little bit about this assertion that you make, which I think is right on the money. You say in your book that our response to the coronavirus is the worst public policy mistake worldwide in at least a century. Clearly a very strong statement. I think you're right, but how would you make that case to people? Sure. Well, I I mean... So you look at World War II, obviously that was a war we had to fight in the United States and you know, democracies had to fight it against fascism. Um, you know, I, I think the, the Cold War, you know, uh, clearly, uh, you know, that was something else I'd say most people in the world would say we're better off for. So if you sort of look at big picture, even though something like Vietnam happened, which was a terrible, um, you know, failure of U.S. policy, overall the Cold War was something we had to fight. So you have to kind of go back past that, and you look at World War One, and World War One, um, you know, was horrible, totally unnecessary, and killed millions and millions of young men. Led to the destabilization of Europe, um, probably led to the rise of you know of, of communism. It was a terrible and unnecessary war. And when and when I look at the last century, I don't know anything else that compares to what we've done, where we've rolled back civil liberties, where we've essentially forced hundreds of millions now, now you know, coming up on a billion people to take this un, you know, basically rushed vaccine, um, and where we've, uh, where we've, you know, we closed schools, we, we, you know, we did a lot of economic harm, we, you know, we, 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 if you look at sort of mental health, uh, uh, you know, levels of mental health, uh, you know, statistics. And when you survey people about their mental health, that's been hurt. There's been, there's been a baby bust. I mean, this has been a terrible episode, you know, by governments and public health, and it's still going on. And it's not clear that anything we did did anything to stop the spread of this virus. Yeah, you're right on the money. And, you know, when you look back to that Imperial College model that was such a bust, this is this is a guy nobody should have listened to in the first place, Neil Ferguson. <laughs> right. I mean, this guy had no credibility to begin with. Why did everybody go and jump on his recommendations to begin with when he had such a bad track record already and everybody knew about it? said this many times, I believe more in sort of incompetence and bureaucratic incentives and financial incentives than, you know, that there's three people getting together and running the world. But if you look at the last 20 years, there was a group of people very loudly talking about the risk of an emerging infectious disease. That's what they called it. And, And a lot of those people had a financial incentive in playing up the risk. And Neil Ferguson... 
Uh, and, you know, and they set up these coordinating centers like the one Ferguson ran that made all these horrible predictions. Well, those predictions didn't come true. They didn't come true. They didn't come true. And then all of a sudden, this virus comes out of China and looks very much like it's been manipulated in a lab um, and, you know, and probably leaked out of the lab. And all these people all of a sudden have the virus they've been waiting for. They called it disease X and they've been planning for, and they couldn't wait to shut the world down like they like they had said they were going to. Hmm. That's crazy. So he kind of gave them cover then. Well, you know, we've got this recommendation. We better follow it. That's right. That's right. He, he you know, he provided the academic cover. Uh, and, you know, he's very, uh, you know, he's, he's like, he's British, so he's got the accent. And he seems <laughs> to know exactly what he's talking about. And only if you've been paying attention to the idiocy that he'd gotten on with for the last 15 years might you have said, hey, maybe we shouldn't listen to this guy. Right, right. That's, oh man, that's just maddening. What about <laughs> Fauci? I got to get to Fauci before I run out of time, because here's this man now declaring I represent science, and that's why people are so critical of me, but you're just criticizing science. This is a guy who is now caught lying, lying to Congress about the gain-of-function research issue and the funding of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. What do you make of this man, and what ought to be followed up on in terms of accountability with him? Well, I mean, I do, you know, I think there needs to be, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know whether or not he, he, you know, he broke the law criminally, but I certainly, he should be investigated that, you know, the, 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 the people with subpoena power need to subpoena NIH and figure out what he really knew uh, in those first few days about uh, the virus and why it is that he and these other sort of top virologists and infectious disease specialists did everything possible to downplay the possibility of a lab leak when internally they were talking about how, you know, the virus had these features that did not look natural. That certainly needs to be investigated. Yeah. Um, he, he, there's a, but there's a broader point, and I know we're short on time. When Fauci says, I am science, it's absurd. Okay. <laughs> Here's, it's absurd in two ways. First of all, it's a complete misunderstanding of what science is, right? Science is, I have a theory about how X works or Y works, and I run an experiment to see if it's true. And if, and, and if the experiment says what I think it's going to say, great, I move forward with my theory. If it doesn't, I go back and I look to see how I can change my theory. And hopefully other people will then be able to reproduce my experiment. And together we kind of move forward towards, uh, 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 you know, towards figuring out whether that theory is true or false. So it's not, it's not Anthony Fauci, you know, his view of the world, but there's an even more fundamental misunderstanding. And, I, and this is the analogy I always use because it's so, I, I think people can understand it so well. When we developed the atomic bomb, that was a great scientific achievement, right? It was, yeah. it was thousands and thousands of men and women working you know, to, to, to make this thing of, un, of the power that the humanity had never seen before. And, you know, incredible, incredible breakthroughs in science and technology. But Robert Oppenheimer, who led that effort, didn't get to decide whether to drop the bomb. <laughs> Harry Truman decided whether to drop the bomb. Yes. The scientists can say, here's what we think might happen if you do X or Y. Here are the risks to leaving the schools open. Here are the risks to closing them. But it is us as a society, through our elected leaders, who have to make those decisions. It's not up to Anthony Fauci. 
And that was forgotten at the very beginning of this. And it still seems to have been forgotten by a lot of people. You're right. I mean, he's the top paid bureaucrat in the federal government. He's not God. He doesn't get to decide what the American people have to do because he represents science. That's such a good point. And going back to the whole broader issue of the response that the United States was involved in and other countries have gone even further than we have, you point out that all these over-the-top responses are not necessarily because they made sense, but because we could do them. And the 24-7, the internet, all of these things kind of combined to spur this on, but how does it stop? How does it end? Um, Well, I think it has ended, you know, in a lot of the United States, right? Certainly in a lot of red states um, and red counties and blue states, people are just not paying much attention to this anymore. Yes. Um, And you see that the federal judges who last year were not willing to sort of stand up to these overbroad lockdown orders are now standing up to vaccine mandates. They've realized that they can't let the, you know, the Constitution, as people said last year and, and this year too, the Constitution doesn't go away for a virus that kills three out of every 1,000 people it infects. Right. And so the judiciary has a role. I think we are standing up. I think the situation, frankly, is more perilous in Europe, which is, you know, there are, for whatever reason, they have more of a, you know, they have more of a status tradition there, and they, and they are going back into lockdown. I don't foresee that happening in the United States unless, you know, frankly, something really terrible happens. But, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine that the Omicron virus variant or any of the other variants are going to change their real calculation here. Yeah. Do you have any concerns about some of these reports about digital passports for the world and some of these, even these corporations like MITRE working on this whole idea of digital passports, smart health cards? What do you know or what can you tell us about how this is emerging down the road and, and kind of getting into the whole issue of a surveillance state based on your health? and your? Do you think that's really going to come to fruition? I'm doing, I think it's going to come to fruition. I, I, I certainly hope not. I mean, I mean, what I know, this is not something I have chased hard because, um, uh, you know, I have enough other things to worry about, certainly mainly about vaccines right now. Um, I, what I know is that, you know, there, there are companies that want to do this. Um, there are certain sort of, you know, quote-unquote forward-thinking government bureaucrats who'd like to do this, and there might be money to be in it. And so whenever those things come together, there's a possibility it certainly doesn't seem like this is something that the United States is particularly interested in right now. But again, um, you do see more of it in Europe. You see, you know, there's been a move towards, uh, you know, vaccine passports with a QR code that are they, 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 they have moved further in this direction than we have. Right. What do you think ultimately the lesson is from the pandemic so far and the response to the pandemic, the hysteria, as you rightly note, what do you think the lesson is for Americans maintaining liberty and not being willing to turn over all of their rights and all of their freedoms to a government that just seizes an opportunity like this to oppress us in many ways? Have we learned that lesson? And if, if so, do you think that that would prevent anything like this from happening? again well I, I you know I, you hate to make categorical statements right because it did happen you know pretty quickly in a matter of weeks last year and and you know if 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 another if a super flu turns up or whatever and people get frightened again who knows what they will do or don't i mean i, I think the lesson is that turns out the founders were right i mean I, you know i think it was jefferson right you know that uh, you know if you or, or, or i guess it was benjamin franklin who said you know that if you're willing to give up uh, safety for liberty for safety, if you're willing to give up liberty for safety, you wind up with neither. Right. And uh, and and he was right. And you know the people who put our constitution together and 
and tried to make sure that the that the federal government and the states were balanced. They they did it right. Too much government is no one's friend. Absolutely. Well, it's a great book, Pandemia by Alex Berenson. Keep up the good work. You can check out Alex Berenson over at Substack.com as well. Thank you so much, Alex. Really appreciate your being here. Janet, thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. And we'll be back. Stay with us. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, as we know, anything could ultimately happen with this Dobbs case before the Supreme Court oral arguments were Wednesday. And I wanted to follow up a little bit on what took place. I think it's just beyond belief that you have many, many people opining that Roe v. Wade could be history after the arguments that were made before the Supreme Court. Part of the reason for that is because that was exactly what the Missouri, that was exactly what the Mississippi guy was arguing for when he was standing before the justices. I'm going to get into more details on that. But you can always count on the left to go completely berserk when abortion is involved. I don't know how dark your soul has to be to say some of the things that some of these people said, but it really is a stark contrast. One of the things pointed out by some folks over at National Review, Dan McLaughlin, I think in particular, who wrote a really good synopsis that I'm going to get to, was that neither side was trying to say, let's find a compromise. You know, one side, don't you dare touch Roe, and the other side, Roe needs to go. And Roe does need to go. It was poorly argued. It's a terrible, terrible decision. People have been saying this for decades now. The consequences of that decision are beyond belief. It's multiple holocausts when you consider all of the lives lost over the course of the legalization of abortion. It's just beyond belief that that was ever decided in the first place, not to mention the fact that there was a lot of emphasis on the fact that there is no abortion in the Constitution. We have known this for 48 years. You know, it's incredible that it takes us this long to get to the point where, you know, you have a pretty sizable amount of people in the United States finally saying, hey, wait a minute. And you know what? I have to say just as a side note, a few years ago, I you might remember I had interviewed Joe Scheidler from Pro-Life Action League, and that man is one of the most, he's now he's now deceased, but that man has done more for the pro-life movement than anybody else because he was the first. He was the first in Chicago. I had the opportunity at one point to join in some of the activities of Pro-Life Action League, a wonderful group there in the city of Chicago. And I just am so sad that he's not here to watch this unfold. I said this uh, earlier today. I said, what happens if Roe is overturned? Oh, and Joe Scheidler isn't here to see it. I'm telling you, it's the people who are on the ground floor of being right and were alone in being right for years and years and years and years that are sometimes forgotten when you finally get to the point of reaching the goal that they saw needed to be reached way before anybody else. So 
anyway, Racketeer for Life is the name of his book. If you want a good read, go back and read that. Um, it's he, He's just very much on my mind as we are hoping and praying for an overturning of Roe v. Wade. So let's go to some of these insane leftists. Whoopi Goldberg, I'm not going to play what she said on The View because she's just nuts. Not that you know, the people aren't nuts whose quotes I am going to play for you, but Whoopi Goldberg chastising men. How do you know a fetus wants to live? Are you a woman? Are you what? Hey, wait a minute. You're going to get all those transgender activists worked up there, Whoopi. Are you really making some kind of distinction between men and women? Because that's not what your side does anymore. But let's turn to a very reliable voice of insanity. Joy Reid over at MSNBC. She had on one of her guests, at least, Ellie Mistal, uh, another not the nation correspondent and frequent guest over there on MSNBC. This was some of the audio from their nutty take on the Dobbs oral arguments. Listen to cut one. Now, if you happen to be one of the 166 million women living in America, it appears that the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is willing to reduce you to a secondary constitutional citizen by decreeing that control over your very person, your physical body, belongs not to you, but to your state. Conservatives want you to think that a fetus, a a fetus who is pre-viability, that means that it cannot exist um, outside of its mother, it cannot live outside of, of the womb, has the same, should have the same legal rights as full grown black people in this country. And that the fact that it doesn't is some kind of miscarriage of justice, no pun intended, and that the people who shouldn't have the full rights are the women who are carrying the fetus. Now, I can prove that a fetus is not deserving of full personhood rights, because if it were, they would be arguing that the fetus should be given citizenship. They would be arguing that the fetus should have other rights, like a right to education or a right to health care. They're only concerned about the right of a fetus when that right can be used to diminish the rights of women. This is so stupid. Where do you even begin with this? I I just think that we start at the beginning. Joy Reid, when a woman is pregnant, the life living inside her womb, I can attest to you from personal experience, is not the woman's body. It's someone else's body. It's her son's body or it's her daughter's body. Do the chromosome count, hon. It's not your physical body. You are carrying the baby. And it's so basic. Again, I, I really have to go over this. I thought it was also interesting that Ms. Stahl makes reference to the baby's mother. That's interesting. Only human beings or animals uh, have mothers, right? <laughs> animals or human beings. If you're referencing a baby in the womb, even if you try to dehumanize it by reducing that baby to being called a fetus, when you use the term its mother, you are giving it humanity, aren't you? No, you're not giving it humanity. You're not giving him or her humanity. You're recognizing his or her humanity. And by the way, when you're referencing the issue of black people, you might want to check the abortion rate in the black community. Because if you really had your moral head on straight, you would be screaming and yelling at the genocide, the infanticide of an entire generation of black Americans. It's, it's, it's the most racist thing ever. And these people will never get on board because they can't. They're not thinking straight. They just follow lockstep, lockstep after any progressive narrative. And they don't want to move away from that even when they sound foolish. Honestly, look look at some of the proverbs on what it means to be a fool and then think of those as you're listening to some of this. Well, then Joy Reid continued her rant here. This is by Newsbusters. Turning to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, 
wonderful voice, uh, talking more about this issue and going after, of course, Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, because that's so relevant. Listen to cut two. Listening today for me, a congresswoman, to two men, Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, who were credibly accused of violating the sanctity of women. You know, both of them got away with it, of course, and got on the court. But having them sort of stand up and sort of soberly argue whether or not women are owned by the state, it's, it, it made me feel some kind of way. Mississippi's defense of their 15-week abortion law makes a case that's truly bizarre, arguing that things are different than they were back in the 70s. That, quote, today, adoption is acceptable, and on a wide scale, women attain both professional success and a rich family life. So why can't we just force poor women and rape victims to bring fetuses to term? I mean, can they not just leave the babies on the doorstep of a firehouse and get back to the office? All right, let's let's take this in reverse order. What she was quoting there when she said abortion is acceptable, that wasn't what it said, and it was not referencing the print on the screen either. It said abortion is accessible, not acceptable. So she even misquoted her own graphic. But this idea that Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh were credibly accused of violating the sanctity of women. Uh, Where's your proof of that again? Because I remember sitting through all of the Anita Hill nonsense, and I recall all of the insanity surrounding Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process. And what, by the way, whatever happened to his accusers, they just kind of Wow, they just kind of disappeared into thin air, kind of like a lot of the Black Lives Matter activists and some of the other people who were rioting in the streets and were constantly on TV all during the pandemic. Whoosh, gone. Poof, into thin air. They're back in their apartments. They're back in their homes. They were called off. You know, the rioting, the looting, the screaming, the yelling, the non-masking, all of it was gone. It's amazing, isn't it, how things just kind of disappear where progressives are concerned. But women being owned by the state is not the point whatsoever. And it really beggars belief that you have to even respond to this whole thing. It's not that women are owned by the state. They're making the argument that it really is up to the legislatures in order to follow scientific discoveries and studies that have been done since 1973 which are proving more and more the humanity of the unborn child whose life begins at conception. And viability has nothing to do with it. You are a human being knit together in your mother's womb from the day of conception. They can't do anything about that. We'll be back. Stay with us. A mother's womb has now become the unsafest place in America, with abortion being the leading cause of death and babies being aborted up to term in some states. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, helping moms choose life. You see, when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hit a heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. 
Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help save 400 babies by the end of this year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. And now through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving 10 babies' lives. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent his son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers around the world for only four $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Let's play a little bit more of the unhinged leftist audio from MSNBC. I got to get to this because when you are looking at the Dobbs case and how the left is reacting to the Dobbs case, you have to cautiously, optimistically hope and pray that the reason they're getting so insane is because they know what's coming or fear what's coming. In fact, it was a wonderful day in the courtroom, as many people have talked about, when you had so many justices really sounding like Roe is on thin ice and praise the Lord if that's the case. And I think actually Mark Crutcher said something so smart as he always does. This is the president of Life Dynamics who was on my show a couple of days ago. And he was saying, I think what they want to do because they're sick of abortion is take abortion out of the Supreme Court's hands once and for all so they don't have to deal with it anymore and send it back to the legislatures in order to be free of having to confront this over and over and over again. So hopefully we'll get that. And somebody had made the remark, which I thought was very well said, aren't you glad, this was on social media, aren't you glad that all of those Neanderthal mouth-breathing conservative voters didn't listen to people like David French and people like the Gospel Coalition when the election was taking place in 2016 and didn't listen to their warnings about what an evil, evil man Donald Trump was. They looked at the issue of the Supreme Court matters, and that was a very big issue for people in 2016. We're about to find out just how great the Supreme Court issue is going to matter to this country when the Dobbs decision comes down uh, in a few months from now. At any rate, let's go over to MSNBC. This is, again, from Newsbusters, the failed New York City mayoral candidate Maya Wiley claimed that it was obvious Mississippi's abortion law was bad and unconstitutional simply because it is Mississippi. This is cut three. Fundamentally, when you hear this argument that Mississippi... Mississippi, the state that fought school integration, the state that has so long fought against all the right, fundamental rights of other groups of people, is actually saying, you know what? History. Rely on history, no matter how sexist, no matter how racist, 
no matter how divisive, in deciding whether or not this precedent should stand. And to hear a Justice Alito say, why, what did courts do in 1864? 1864. Well, you know what? As a black woman, I certainly hope that is not our historical litmus test about how we protect our rights today. Oh, boy, where do you even begin with this? Uh, It's kind of funny and a little bit ironic, more than a little bit. If you're referencing the unfortunate history and the terrible history of segregation and racism, uh, you might want to take the opportunity to fight for the marginalized here because the marginalized here are the unborn children who are being murdered by the millions. What do those people matter? As somebody once said, I think it was Reagan who initially said, you know, the only people who are fighting for abortion are those who've already been born. Still remains true. Then Wiley claims that Justice Kavanaugh's argument that voters and legislatures should decide the issue of abortion is just like voter suppression and proved the more a person says the word literally, the less literal they are. This is cut for. And to Neil's point about a Justice Kavanaugh saying... Let the legislators sort it out, because I heard that loud and clear that his leaning is to say, let's leave it up to the states. Mm -hmm. This is the same Supreme Court that has literally opened the floodgates to voter suppression after literally spending 100 years of fighting to gain fair access to the ballots and so much voter suppression happening across the country. But now we're supposed to leave it up to legislators that are actively working because of this Supreme Court's recent precedent coming out of South Carolina, former Confederacy to say, yeah, go back to your old ways, make it harder for people to actually vote. This is the reality of America today, and this is the grounded and experiential reality that is being ignored in, the, in so much of the arguments that we heard. Yeah, saying literally multiple times and flat out lying about what's going on concerning modern day voting is not going to get you very far if your viewers are informed. But then again, we are talking about MSNBC. It's going to be very interesting to see how this all shakes out. Now, President Biden says he supports abortions up to birth. He said, I support Roe v. Wade. It's a rational position to take. Right. You also think it's rational to force masks on everybody on airplanes, even though it's not necessary and doesn't do anything to stop COVID-19. So we'll take what you're Thoughts are as a grain, oh, with a grain of salt. Nancy Pelosi says the Supreme Court will lose legitimacy if it overturns Roe v. Wade. Has nothing to do with it. National Review has a good piece here. Justices show supreme skepticism of Roe. And here's what they said. The Supreme Court, in hearing these arguments, of course, will be deciding the fate of Mississippi's ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And the fate of Roe is in the balance, which is really, really good. Now we have to see if the justices have the fortitude to do the right thing and end 48 years of judicial usurpation and restore the primacy of the Constitution. The lawyers for the abortion clinic and for the Biden administration insisted on this all or nothing outcome, giving the court no alternative path to uphold the Mississippi law without overruling Roe. Now, that's what I was referencing earlier. That's a really important thing. It is all or nothing on both sides. And in a way, that's wonderful because I don't know about you, but as a pro-life Christian, I have been tired of the overemphasis on incrementalism for all of these years. And it's good. 
It's good. Go. Go for the whole thing. Overturn Roe. Get rid of it. Now, as many people have pointed out, if it goes back to the legislatures, then you will have states like California, states like Oregon, states like Washington, states like Illinois, continuing to have legalized abortion because we know at least with the present makeup of their legislatures, there's going to be total insanity regarding pro-abortion positions that will continue to govern those states. But there will be tons of states that no doubt will outlaw it. And that's going to be a wonderful thing. It's not a wonderful thing that abortion would still be legal in these states, but at least we're returning to some semblance of order when it comes to who gets to decide. I think what's going to be very interesting is this. During the course of these oral arguments, there were references made to, well, what about some of these other cases? Because they were really getting into the nuts and bolts of uh, you know, the, the binding precedent and how that informs what the court ought to do. How much do you really look back to binding precedent? And can you get rid of something just because it's wrong? Um, this is kind of funny because then you had the Mississippi Solicitor General bringing up the issue. They, he was asked about, for, for example, the Obergefell case. I, he tried to dodge it because he's trying to stick to this issue. And I, I, I can understand why he did that. But think about this for a moment. The Obergefell case, I think, is going to be at some point, if the Lord tarries, at some point is going to be on the legal ground that Roe is on now. Because there was nothing in the Constitution about marriage at all. And the federal government being able to control how the states view marriage at all. And in fact, they just did this power play overriding over 30 states constitutions on the issue of marriage. And we all just kind of acted like it didn't happen. The only person who was really trying to fight back in any meaningful way and didn't succeed at it was Judge Roy Moore in Alabama. He was the only one who saw it legally the way it really was. But it was outrageous that five unelected judges would just create a new institution and call it marriage against the will of most of the country, at least statewide, because the majority of states had protections for real marriage in their constitutions. That was an, an egregious violation of so many different things, the Constitution foremost. So we'll see if Obergefell ends up having the same fate, it would give me some peace of mind. It would give me some hope if Roe can be overturned that someday so can Obergefell. But boy, don't take your eye off the ball on that one because that, again, you have people who were on the ground floor on Obergefell in 2015 saying this is evil. And you know what? It is evil. You don't redefine marriage, period. And I don't mean to get off on that whole thing, but it's going to be very, very interesting to see how all of this plays out. It, it was also interesting to see Chief Justice John Roberts and Clarence Thomas and Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett and Samuel Alito really make a lot of comments pertaining to the fact that Clarence Thomas, especially, that abortion is not in the Constitution, that they'd be willing to upend potentially Roe just on the basis of it being wrong and wrongly decided in the first place. Very important days are ahead. So keep on praying for the Supreme Court decision in this very, very critical case of Dobbs v. Jackson women's health. All right, we got to leave it there. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. God bless you.